Hello and welcome to 5 Minutes to Midnight. My name is Mohamed Eldafani and with me in this episode is Libyan activist and popular rapper Asim Harig, who will share with us his insight into the workings of the militias currently blighting Libya and robbing it of its wealth. But first, as always, I will set out the broader context of how we have reached this situation. They were hailed as heroes while they were fighting Muammar Gaddafi's forces in 2011. But not all was as it seemed. From the outset, Gaddafi had blamed the Islamists for the protests against his regime. Although he was right, by that time he had become an embarrassing eccentric and the butt of jokes the world over and few people took him seriously. The first foreign voice to raise the alarm was Admiral James Stavridis, the American commander of NATO who in March 2011 told the US Senate Armed Services Committee that potential flickers of Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah elements had been seen in intelligence regarding the Libyan opposition, which was poised to take power in the event of Gaddafi's fall. He was right about Al-Qaeda, but wrong about the Lebanese Hezbollah group. There are no Shias in Libya, and in any case Hezbollah was allied to Syria, which backed Gaddafi. Stavridis' remarks were echoed by a senior US counter-terrorism official, who spoke of a sprinkling of extremists to perhaps include Al-Qaeda among the anti-Gaddafi rebels. But the Islamists were not the only problem. They were supplemented by armed crime syndicates, some allied to the more political militias, which themselves indulged in crime, from murder, kidnapping and extortion, to people trafficking and oil smuggling. Add to these the town, region, district and base and tribe-based militias, and you get the perfect recipe for chaos. To complicate matters further, many militias received material support from Arab and foreign states which found in them convenient tools for implementing their own agendas. Today, the militias are blighting Libya, robbing it of its wealth and future and standing in the way of any meaningful path to democracy. Our guest in this episode is Asim Mhirig, also known as Ibn Sabit, a popular Libyan rapper. He called for the uprising against Gaddafi before it happened and took part in it, but was soon disappointed and disillusioned. After the downfall of the Gaddafi regime in October 2011, Asim stayed in Libya and started several businesses and was involved in the 9th of November movement whose leaders were kidnapped, threatened or exiled for insisting on elections. Hello and welcome Asim. First, tell us a bit more about your background, then share with us your thoughts and insights about the situation in Libya today and where you think it is heading. Thank you, first of all, Mohammed, for uh, having me on your podcast. Um, I, I don't know where to begin. There's a lot to, to go over uh, over the, the past decade. Most recently, if we're talking about the militias, uh, I live in downtown Tripoli. And um, as you know, anyone who's been following the news, there have been uh, a series of clashes between different armed groups um in in the downtown core and around it and and we actually uh, those of us living in in the downtown core we have actually been caught in the in in the crossfire several times um so even for somebody who's not uh or and was never connected to the militias we see their violence on a daily basis um and most people don't even know even those that are on the ground don't even know what's what's going on uh, clashes start without warning and people sometimes like the most recent one um at the at the Lido, uh, people left their cars running with the keys in the ignition some left their children and ran off uh, there were shoes and and, and sandals yeah. all over the place uh, this is just the reality of uh living in um in tripoli under you know under the rule of the militias um and unfortunately it's just uh it's become a fact of life after a decade of this uh what we're seeing now uh with some of the tire burning and some of the the protests and 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 riots if you could call that call it that 
in, in Tripoli and, and Tobruk and Msrata and some of the other towns and cities in Libya is just a boiling over of uh, a cacophony of frustrations that have piled up over the past decade. Um, but there is, unfortunately, there's there's no clear uh, leadership or direction or anything like that. It's just frustrations boiling over. Uh, as for how people can direct their uh, their anger in, in some kind of productive way, unfortunately, the the you know, the the civil society landscape is as fragmented as the militia landscape. So that's why we you know we we, we have seen protests in in Martyr Square in, in, in downtown Tripoli, some, for example, um, aiding the the Mufti who doesn't live in Libya and others insulting him in the same space um, with different armed, armed groups uh, in between them, you know, and, 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 and almost comically, the, the fact that uh, all of Libya's political class uh, are claiming to be in support of these protesters uh, who really wanted, uh, and, and they demonstrated this by registering to vote 2.8 million voters uh, who wanted presidential and parliamentary elections, but it seems that every every time we, we, we get closer, we set a milestone for that, the can is kicked further down the road, and, and different groups and parties are trying to avoid that uh, by any means necessary. So um that that's just that is just a contemporary background like like of what's happening right now in yeah. libya yeah. um i'm not sure if you want to go way back with me to, to 2011 uh we, we can do that uh as, as you know i was i was directly involved yeah let's go uh, back a little uprising. bit to 2011 because that will give us some insight about how all this began and of the nature of these groups that have now grown beyond control. Okay, so so a little bit of personal background, um, and uh, I'm I'm not sure that you know this, uh, Mohammed, but um, you know, for somebody who, who might be hearing this for the first time and who doesn't know my background or anything like that, um, I, I grew up in in um, you know a Muslim Brotherhood back uh, uh, household. Uh, my father was one of the earliest to join the Muslim Brotherhood in the 70s. And he left for the, for the US in the late 70s um, to do his master's and PhD. He ended up finishing his PhD in Canada. Throughout all this time, um, he, he was a member of the, of, of the Muslim Brotherhood until about 1992, where he left uh, because the group took a di direction that he didn't feel, um, you know, uh, it matched didn't, didn't align with with the reason he joined, which was, uh, you know, he joined as at the time in the seventies there was no other resistance group to 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 Gaddafi. Yeah. Uh, so he had his he has his he had his PhD funding cut off, so he had to work like several TA jobs to get through his PhD. He started his own consultancy, um, and that gave me you know, growing up around the Muslim Brotherhood, but also being able to visit Libya, I, I got to see both sides of of the Libyan world at the time, uh, you know, growing up in the 80s, 90s, and then the, the 2000s, when um, when the most, most of the Muslim Brotherhood and the Islamists struck a deal with Saif al-Islam, we were, we were opposed to that, um, but most of them, they got on board, um, and they were actually behind uh uh, and I'm talking publicly and privately, and they know who they are. Uh, they were behind Saif al-Islam right up until February, in, until the beginning of February uh, uh, 2011. It wasn't until it looked like the uprising would actually succeed that many of them jumped ship. Um, so yeah, my, my I mean, uh, the other thing about my father, actually, the, the more obvious thing is that he's Dr. Ali Mahirig, who was the former Minister of Electricity in the Zidane government. So the, from 2013 until precisely uh, when Fajr Libya began, um, we, we, that, uh, that would be eight years ago, uh, almost today, a week from today, actually, I think yeah. July 13th. So that's, the, I actually drove him out to, 
he wanted to stay. I, I actually drove him out to Shirban, you know, flew him, flew him back to, to, to Canada where, I, you know, afterwards uh, I came back. So, um, that's, that's the family background. Yeah. Uh, the, in, in, uh, in June, 2011. So I was a little bit late to make it to Nalut. Um, I joined a group called Shuhada al-Asima, which was comprised of Libyans from, from all over Libya. The, the leader of the group, um, Murad Zikri, had spent time in Yemen uh, and was a student of uh, Muqbil al-Wadiri, mm-hmm. uh, as was another one of his deputies, who was a friend of one of my uncles, uh, Sheikh Fathi. Uh, he, he passed away during the uprising he was actually my in so at the time there was a lot of suspicion over you know um, a fifth column uh, joining um, revolutionary groups and you know giving intelligence to the to Gaddafi's forces and, yeah. and that sort of thing so you actually had to have somebody um, um, kind of vet you in order to join any of these uh, revolutionary armed groups, so he was my in, um, and he actually he know he knows my family very well, or um, our families are, are close. So uh, yeah, that that was the beginning of my my journey with them from Nalut until Tripoli. Yeah, and and that was it was a, at the time it was kind of there, there were a lot of there were a lot of weird things to me that happened because I went there really believing what I was saying. Um, I had started making rap music, like anti-Gaddafi rap music in 2008. And the theme, the theme never changed. It was always like, like almost violently opposed to, to Gaddafi. Um, and you know, when the, when the uprising started, I, 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 I did, try to incorporate themes of, um, you know, uh, 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 how, how can I, and like compassion and, 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 and how to deal with prisoners of war and, and how to, you know, how to be righteous about, about the uprising and that sort of thing. When I made it there, what I realized, one of the first things that I realized was how regionalist it was, even, even we're talking June, um, June 2011, yeah. a group that had joined, part of the reason I was comfortable with joining was because they had people from everywhere, from Tobruk, from, uh, from Darna, from Banghazi, um, from Tripoli, obviously, from Nalut. Murad Zikri is a Tripoli uh, resident of Nalut, Naluti origin. Um, um, so it, it, was, it was a comfortable group to be around, yeah. uh, at least at first. And then you know, you start to see that there was static between the Amazigh and Zintan. Mm. Uh, and I saw, I saw things, you know, boil over between them uh, several times while I was there. Um, but more concerningly, and, 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 and to fit with the theme of this podcast, yeah. um, we, had, we had individuals, and I can't say, I mean, they were majority certainly they were the minority but they were a sizable minority at least in our um in our battalion who um would later uh die with the Benghazi revolutionaries shura council so So there was a there was a large group of them from Benghazi and and it didn't it didn't you know like right off the bat, it, it wasn't obvious, you know, because we all had the same goal, and that was to decapitate uh, Gaddafi. But you know, with the with the the, the behavior, the language that they used, you know, we used to pray together. Um, you know, they used to give like mini sermons here and there. Um, not all of the, uh, in fact, most of the the guys in our in our in our battalion weren't religious at all. Um, but you know, being surrounded with these guys, that was, that was one of the things that, um, you know, that they were trying to, I I guess you could say, uh, you know, trying to, um, warm them up to ideology. 
Um, and, you know, they, they were, you know, there, there were some positives. Some of them were, were honorable on the battlefield and, and they dealt with prisoners of war in, in an honorable way. Others did not just use language like anaim or loot to, yeah, yeah. you know, basically to anything that they could get their hands on. And it was, you know, it was permissible for them. There was a way, there was a way of doing that. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's amazing how it was amazing to me anyways, how, you know, a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of the people in our battalion would act a certain way, um, away from the battlefield. But then once we, you know, we were on the battlefield, everything changes, you know, we, we weren't, we weren't obviously professional, uh, or disciplined in any way, shape or form to be perfectly honest. It was NATO. Uh, pummeling the force and Gaddafi's forces, and then we would, um, you know, if we could, we would uh, we would make gains um, and comb on the ground. And most of the combing really was um, for a lot of people, unfortunately, was collection of, of of loot. So we made it back to once we made it to Tripoli. I mean, there was obviously a lot happened. I'm skipping a lot of things that happened. Yeah, uh, details yeah. that I don't think really matter for this podcast. Um, but you know, the, it, it was interesting to see how, uh, for me, how, how using religion played a big part in everything and, and how actually extreme, uh, and how far away from mainstream, um, at least Libyan Islam, some of these people were like some of them, for example, like they were opposed to any kind of photography or videography unless there was um, a righteous purpose. You know, that, that's something I hadn't heard. And like, like only the, the most hardcore Salafis used to say that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's something that I came across, like, uh, you know, Tasweer Haram, you know, like that was kind of flabbergasting yeah. for me. Um, but that, that, that was on the lighter side of things still. Um, you know, um, it, matters got political very quickly. And um there there was there was an understanding that you know we have the we have the weapons we have the arms we're not going to give them up and we're not going to let any you know secular liberal whatever uh you know take over the country um i i happened to detach my, to, or to begin to detach myself around october 2011 for me that was uh you know the the capture of Gaddafi and his summary execution, that was for me um, the end of it. Um, but I maintained contact with a lot of the, a lot of the fellows in, in, in the brigade. And I would discover um, a couple of years later when, um, when Operation Dignity launched by uh, by Khalifa Haftar in 2014, like shortly after that, um, that uh, almost everyone from Eastern Libya that was in our battalion died with either uh, the February 17th Brigade yeah. or with Atsar al-Sharia. And one of them, I believe, Abu Abdullah, was actually the author of at least some of the Ansar al-Sharia or, or Majlis, uh, uh, Majlis uh, Barazi, the, the, the Barazi Revolutionaries Shura Council. Yeah, yeah. He, he was actually responsible for, uh, for authoring their statements. Mm. So that was, that was one of those things where it was like, wow, really? Like I used to, you know, we, 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 uh, you know, we used to, to eat and pray and 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 descend on the battlefields together, shoulder to shoulder. I, I had no, you know, I had kind of my wildest imagination where I think that these guys would end up being with Ansar al-Sharia, which later, you know, all of those groups became absorbed by by ISIS. Yes, and they so, they wreaked havoc in Benghazi. I know that for for a fact. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, everybody knows that. Anybody who doesn't admit that is 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 in denial. Um, but you know, they once they had once they had full control over Benghazi early in July when when Haftar's forces retreated to Rajma, 
and they were joined later by by the Saraka Brigade. The assassinations, which they kept, for, you know, for years, trying to to everybody knew who was responsible, but they were, they kept trying to lob the the responsibility to to anybody but themselves. Yeah. And the assassinations, uh, they they shot up from you know two or three a day to as many as as twenty a day. Yeah. Until October fifteenth of that year, when they just you know stopped all of a sudden because you know people in the streets of Malazi rose up and helped the uh, helped the Libyan army come back and take the, the, take back the majority of the city. Basically, uh, at one point, you said that the uh, militias uh, said that they were uh, getting the upper hand, or they had the upper hand, and they <coughs> said they had the weapons and uh, and. Uh, everything and they would not give away power to any secular or any other uh, uh, any other authority in your opinion is that still the predominant view amongst the militias today they they have become much more pragmatic but at the time that was the spoken word um, not just behind closed doors but in public you could you could speak to any of um, at, at least you know those those kinds of armed groups. You could speak to anyone in the rank and file, whether they were religious or not. Yeah. It didn't matter. They all they all said the same thing because that was kind of just the going. Um, that was just the, the you know the going dialect at the time. It yeah. Was the going vernacular. Nowadays, it's it's com- it's almost changed um, completely. Like I don't want to I don't want to say who I I. Um, I have met or spoken with, yeah. or I'm on a first name basis with, from the the, the leaders of the armed groups in Tripoli, um, because I can't. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there, the any kind of um, any kind of religious um, uh, cloak ha- has been utterly and completely removed. There's no. I mean, to be to be to be honest with you, at, le- at least the ones that that I know and that I speak with, they have they don't even pretend uh, to use religion for anything anymore. They're they are actually very blatantly self interested. So crime um, and, and and they they feel no kind of fear of anything, including impunity. They actually. They have Tripoli split up into uh, into squares, and this is this is something this is something that somebody very high up next to Hanawa told me my like told me personally. Yeah. Uh, you know they have Tripoli split up into squares. For the most part, each armed group avoids uh, or tries to avoid um, entering another armed group's square. They they try not to. Uh, they try not to uh, cause a ruckus when they're traveling. You know, uh, if they have to, yeah. they, they mostly don't. They mostly don't leave the areas of their control. Yeah. Where, where that does happen, and um, somebody would get stopped or questioned or harassed, as the militias do in their checkpoints all over Tripoli, regardless of which militia and which which uh, which part of the the, the, the city. So things like that. Uh, lead to unexpected clashes, like they did, um, like they did uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, in downtown Tripoli yeah. um, between between the Nawasi and uh, and uh, the Khnewat, they Basically, my understanding is that they stopped somebody from the, the Nawasi stopped somebody from the Khnewat and. Uh, arrested him, and and that led to clashes between them. Even though there is already static between them, so you know. Long story short, nowadays they they, uh, uh, it's not it's not um, it's not prudent for them to use religion or religiosity anymore. Um, although they wouldn't go so far as to de- to, to declare themselves secular or anything like that. Um, and and they actually, uh, they actually the language in Libya in Tripoli has kind of morphed over the last couple of years. Like one of the things that that used to be frowned upon um, was the use of the word uh, Medania, 
yeah. or you know civilly civil society. Yeah, uh, that was you. That was assumed to be by the religious crowd as the gateway to secularism in in the early days after the uprising. Nowadays, it's it's used as a counter to um, military rule, which uh, obviously is assumed to be Haftar and anything that comes from his side. Yeah. So they use, I mean, that's the language that they use. But in reality, civil society in, except for this period right now, civil society in, 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 in Tripoli, which I can speak for because I was, I was heavily involved in, um, it's, I wouldn't say it's dead, but it, it, it's, um, it's on life support, uh, because, you know, in the recent past, the organizers of the Lalit Tamdid movement were all driven out of Tripoli um, um, shortly after the kidnapping, and probably and we don't even know if he was killed. Muaz bin Muaz was you know kidnapped eight years ago, and nobody knows what happened to him. So that that's kind of that kind of forced everybody in, in who was active, uh, especially the especially the, the notables to take a step back uh, and worry about themselves and their families. Yeah. Um, and th that's made it difficult to, to organize um, uh, anything that wasn't, wasn't spontaneous as it is now. Um, right now, you know, the, the, the demonstrations and, and the, 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 the tire burning that is, that was just, that has just been a spontaneous kind of sporadic. Yeah. Or, and it uh, kind of mini uprising, and and it's happening in different blocks. Some some neighborhoods, there's nothing going on going on at all, um, and others, you know, like like Tajura has been effectively has effectively shut out anybody. Um, I mean, it's kind of loosened up now, but um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, they 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 pelted Abdul Hamid did Mayba's motorcade. They pelted him actually yeah, with stones. Yeah. And, they drove him out of Tijura and then the fire burning started. And a couple of days ago, I was talking to some of the, uh, I was talking to some of the, 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 the activists there and they actually wanted, some of them wanted to, um, uh, you know, go to the Supreme court, uh, get, basically get the Supreme court, uh, uh judge. Uh, to assume the the role of the presidency until the elections could be held or something like that. Yeah. So there are some, there are ideas floating around like that sort of thing. Yeah. But I mean, as we know, at the end of the day, right now, um, you know, it's it's the armed group that are effectively in control. Um, like even even the prime minister can't really do much uh, unless he has them. Um, at his back, and, and that's that's the reason why. I mean, it's not it's no secret that he's paid out all of the armed groups uh, in Tripoli just to stay on, just to stay on uh, past what is technically has been his, um, you know, his uh, his tenure, which was which which should have expired uh, a week and a half ago. Well, that is uh, is a terrible situation with these militias. If not one of them actually is in control. What is the, the the purpose? I mean, what do they think they are there to do? Is it self-aggrandizement? Uh, are they sort of profiting financially out of this? I mean, what is the end goal? Do they have a goal at all other than just being there? Well, their goal is, you know, they're, so you're putting me on the spot here because if, if I was to get specific, I'd put myself in some hot water. No, we don't want uh, that. No, I can't. I can't do that. But uh, w what I can say is, uh, is, first of all, is that they're much smarter than what anybody tries to characterize them as. They have better resources, better knowledge and intelligence of what is happening in Libya um, than any government official, than any Libya expert or analyst or watcher or anything like that they know everything that's being said um they have ways of interpreting uh, 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 uh intercepting communications um they know who's with who they know they have access to uh 
who's who's entered or left the country. Um, And above all, they actually do have uh, a a strategy for not just, um, you know, enriching themselves, but for prolonging their existence. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that that kind of irks me uh, is whenever I see, you know, uh, Libya experts or analysts try to concoct any kind of DDR strategies that supposedly would dissolve these armed groups. The leaders of these armed groups are not stupid. They know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. They control and they fight or they quarrel over different institutions in Tripoli because they know those institutions translate into material wealth. Yeah. They're, they're not, they're, they're in a, they're, they're in constant battle with, with one another, uh, over control of, of these squares, um, for that reason. And, and there is an, there are active, um, quarrels, uh, cold wars until they become hot wars. If you, if I could put it that way, yeah, yeah. uh, are taking place right now over this very issue um uh you know uh yeah Vanilla obviously being the centerpiece for for the, the government of national unity because he controls most of the territory mm-hmm. in in what is the central parts of tripoli and he has rivals like the nawasi and the 444 uh, uh brigade and now more recently even um, the Rada, the, the special deterrence force. These, these, um, these other three have been have been in some form or another provoked by Ghanewa. And Ghanewa is an immovable object because number one, he has, uh, you know, he has force uh, in the center of Tripoli. Number two, uh, recognizing that, um, you know, the the current prime minister of the, the government of national unity has enriched him to the tune of you know nine figure uh uh injection of cash uh um, to the tune of 150 million uh, libyan dinars which which goes a long way and that helps him uh, maintain control of uh a lot of the ministries including the the ins and outs to the the prime minister's office that are in central tripoli um, anything that would threaten that, and there are a lot of armed groups that are are waiting in the wings, waiting in the shadows for their just for their chance um, to get rid of them. Um, uh, by that same token, he's like I said, you know, he's not stupid, and neither are any of the other armed groups. Yeah. They, anyone, who has, who, anyone who is in control of anything will not give it up, and any any kind of arrangement that comes along that does not. Um, maintain their their control uh, of whatever it is that they control. Um, you know they'll they'll just ignore it and stay put. And that's that's one of the that's one of their survival uh, mechanisms so far. Like most recently, we um, this was in May, middle of May. Um, uh, I was I was there in the middle of it when when Mashara entered Tripoli. Uh, a group of our, uh, a group of militias attacked the Nawasi who live a couple hundred meters away from from that building. Yeah, and uh, the clashes went from five thirty in the morning till eight thirty in the morning. Goodness. Uh, and in the aftermath, it was the, the reason for the clashes were that the Nawasi had declared for Bashara. Yeah, Bashara left. They stopped the clashes. Uh, Mustafa Gadur, who is the you know the the, I guess you could say the supreme commander of the Nawasi, he was um, removed from his post. Uh, uh, he, he was he's either the chief or deputy chief of intelligence. In reality, he is the chief of intelligence in Libya. Um, and it didn't matter. Um, it didn't matter because, you know, living on that block, I used to see his, his armed... Uh, SUV coming and going from the the hangar. They locally they call it the hangar. Hung, yeah. They they know everybody knows, you know who it belongs to. 
Um, and a few days after that, um, there was a, a statement published by the Presidential Council of President Mohammed Manifi, um, abrogating the his uh, you know his dismissal or his suspension. Um, uh, it didn't matter though because at the end of the day, because they physically control yeah, the yeah. those parts of the, of the downtown core, nobody can stop them. You can only stop the you can only stop them by force. So. Um, you know, any kind of decision uh, that would be made, any kind of uh, attempt to, you know, to disarm uh, and then and then reintegrate uh, these armed groups, they're 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 wise to the they're wise to this. They they they'll they'll just ignore it. They have exceptional benefits from from controlling any kind of territory. Uh, the least perhaps obvious uh, to the untrained eye is the fact that if there's a bank, any kind of bank publicly owned or private operating on their turf, um, they get exceptional favors uh, and they have contacts in the government. So the big game in Libya is the, the letters of credit. Yeah. Uh, we've depleted our, our foreign currency reserves uh, mostly by doing that, um, it, it's not as blatant and it's not as terrible as it was maybe a, a few years ago, where you know gangs and and, and militias and well-connected figures, uh, even apart from the militias, were sending empty containers to Libya uh, just so that they can pull hard currency um, uh, out. Now nowadays, it, it, even the, the the gap between the the official um, the official rate and the black the black market rate, it's much smaller, and most people are are, are importing uh, actual products. But the, the the advantages of being in a militia or a militia leader or connected to a militia leader means you can get access to a letter of credit much faster than um, just an ordinary citizen. And this is one of the ways that they have. Uh, grossly enrich themselves. Elsewhere, there are other games in play, you know, human trafficking and fuel smuggling, which are also very lucrative. Yeah. You know, and you of course on the ground to do that. But I mean, at the end of the day, the the play and the goal is the same. You give up territory or you surrender territory, then you become a nobody. Yeah. And even the buff have amassed, they know that you can't like like if there's something that all of them learn from Haytham and Tajuri, who had amassed, you know, uh, nobody knows really. You know, it's certainly a nine-figure amount, but he, he, he has amassed incredible wealth uh, over the last uh, couple of years. But you know, his you know his absence during the the Tripoli war, and then his return, and then his fight to try and become relevant again, was a lesson that you the that you can't uh, just take this wealth and then start a new life abroad. Yeah. Because at the day. Um, I, I heard he got he got denied uh, asylum in France, and then he he uh, for whatever reason he 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 wasn't able to stay. Or perhaps I don't I, I don't even know the details. I'm not going to pretend. Yeah. But he left the left the, the 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 UAE, and he found himself back in Tripoli. So uh, a lot of them have the understanding that you know you have to maintain control on the ground uh, in order to be relevant. Uh, and some of them have even bigger goals. Some of them think that they're going to become, you know, elected officials. Um, I'm not going to say who again because I'm going to put myself in an awkward situation. Yeah, but yeah. there's a few, there's a few militia leaders who declare that they want to run for elections, um, you know, presidential elections. Yeah. They think they're that. They actually think that they're that popular, and they know that uh, by that same token, like like I'm 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 going to sound like a broken record, but having spoken with um, at least a half a dozen of, of some of the bigger le militia leaders, personally, with no middlemen, just me and them, they're, they're not stupid. They yeah. actually know exactly what they're doing. They may not have the demeanor of somebody like educated, or, or, and they definitely don't sound educated and that sort of thing, but, but they're, they know what's going on. Um, they understand very well power politics, um, they understand the, the consequences if they, they give up an inch uh, of the territories that they're in control of, um, you know, and, yeah, and they are and, and they are squeezing it. They are milking 
you know, every last dinar and dirham out of out of you know their control of territory. Well, that sounds a lot more depressing than I had thought. And so, in your opinion, it's accurate to say that looking at Libya as a whole, actually nobody's in charge. In the east, uh, you have the Libyan National Army and Khalifa Haftar and his supporters are more or less in control of the of uh, Barqa or Srinaka. And in the west and in the south, it sounds like nobody actually is in control. No one power is in control. Is that an accurate assessment? Well, um, sort of. Like, there's definitely not one power that's in control. Um, in, in Tripoli, like I said, there are squares. In each square, there is definitely somebody who's in control. Yeah. Okay. So sometimes it's just a, sometimes it's just a city block, like a sub militia. You could you could almost call it. Um, you know, and nothing nothing can happen. Uh, uh, no business even, and no no construction or whatever can happen unless that militia is involved. For example, the old city in Tripoli. Um, I don't think anybody who actually knows um, uh, anybody in there or what's going on there. No, it doesn't know that uh, th- there's a fellow by the name of Khalid Zawi who is in, in charge of everything. Yeah. Everything has to go through him. He's in control. Why? Because he was the first to, you know, round up, um, you know, a group of uh, uh, hard men and thugs and, and assert, his, assert himself on the area. So, you know, he cooperates with the other armed groups that are around, but everybody knows that's his square. You know, the Nawasia, they, they have coastal Tripoli, and then there's other groups you know, elsewhere. So in each block or each square or each municipality, there is somebody in charge. Um, I just got back from, from actually uh, a trip to the south of Libya a couple of weeks ago. And what, what's going on gone there is, is interesting because the, the, you know, it, it seems to me that the Libyan National Army is in control, but they've done it sort of with... Um, They've, they've done it by co-opting um, uh, different tribes um, and, and different armed groups that were already there, yeah. and kind of convincing them to work together. It's not it's not as um, it's not as tight a ship as it is in Eastern Libya, yeah, yeah. Um, w- which I spent actually most of the the period between 2014 and and 2021. I actually spent more time in Eastern Libya than anywhere else. Um, but, uh, it, it's so, so the Fazan region, it's, it's not as, it's not as tight a ship. It, it's more by, 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 by co-opting, you know, tribes and armed groups, yeah. but still, uh, you know, um, there, there's a, there's a friend of mine who's a truck driver. He, he, he makes the, makes the trips between Tripoli and Seba on a weekly basis. And he said, um, you know, there for, for those traveling further, South towards Rat or Katrun, where there are some, where where there are some problems right now, you know, you pay a, they, they they size up your, they size you up and your your load and and where you're from and, and your, your, the kind of vehicle you're driving, and you pay a fee, um, um, and you know they give you a receipt for that and you travel, you carry on down down the route and, um, you know. Um, uh, with that receipt, nobody else is supposed to like try to uh, extort you or try to extract a bribe or a payment from you. So, so in that sense, there is some kind of um, you know, there's there's something that resembles a monopoly of power in the south. Yeah. Um, in most parts, uh, you know, there are a few, there are a few, uh, quite a few gaps where there's different armed groups with different loyalties. But for the most part, that that appears to be what what's going on in the south. But in in Western Libya, uh, especially the bigger cities um, like like the Tripoli, Zawiya, Masrata, hundred percent. It's 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 a game of squares. Yeah, uh, different yeah. different groups control different territories, and they try not to they try not to unnecessarily overstep their boundaries. But when somebody oversteps their boundaries. You know, there's there are, obviously there are clashes without warning. Sounds like drug gangs in Western cities. 
Yeah, that's that's it's like that, I guess. Just I guess well, you could say, one, yeah. uh, well, two, fa- two, two questions. One is about the foreign sponsorship. Are we still getting foreign support being given to the different factions? Like before, we've had some Gulf states, Qatar and uh, Turkey and others. Uh, is this still on the same scale? Is it still happening? Or are these groups now sufficiently self-sustaining? Well, um, they don't need any more weapons or ammunition than they already have. So you could say that they are, they are self-sustaining at this point, and with no, with no overarching threat yeah. uh, impending, there's no need for that. Yeah. So, um, I, I like in my in in, in in my connections and my sources, there's nothing. There doesn't seem to be anything really special going on in terms of foreign involvement. Yeah. Um, not not in not in Tripoli or in, or in, or in Eastern Libya. In fact, it's hard to even find, um, it's hard to see uh, a visible foreign presence, uh, you know, uh, in Tripoli nowadays. Uh, it, it was prevalent in the immediate aftermath of, of, uh, of the Tripoli war. Um, but now, it, not so much. Um, there, you, you won't, you don't see, you don't see very often. Yeah. Um, you know, Turks or, or Syrians, for example, in, in Tripoli. I, I do know uh, from uh, a few uh, personal contacts that they are still there, um, especially uh, in the Aqba bin Nafa air base, which is uh, in the region of Al-Wutia near the Tunisian yeah, yeah. border in the west. But that is so far... Um, you know that is so far out of view that most people don't don't see any of that um, within Tripoli itself. You know, unless you're unless you're um, you know clamoring around the, the the Turkish embassy or the consulate or whatever, it's hard to find Turks or even Syrians, which who, who used to be quite numerous. Now uh, it's hard to find them. I haven't been to Masrata in a minute, so I wouldn't know um, <clears throat> what's going on. I mean. Obviously, it's uh, you know there, there's an Italian a Turkish presence there, but uh, I couldn't speak as a as a as a first person witness for anything that, that that's happening there. Right, I realize we've taken a lot of your time, so I have just one final question. Uh, realistically, in your view, in your personal assessment, given all that you've seen and the people that you've spoken to, is there a way out of this situation? I have very, very finite, uh, very clear, very specific views, but these are those are personal views um, of what what I think should or could be steps that could be taken. That's fine. Um, personal views is fine. Yeah, I, I mean, the first thing I, I do strongly believe that elections need to happen, uh, and that everybody on the ground needs to accept the results of those elections, regardless of how they pan out. Um, so that that's that's the first step for me, um, but you know the the armed groups they 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 must be dealt with. It, it, there there are a couple of ways to do that. My own personal opinion, and and I and I uh, and I can see that the, there are certain groups and individuals that have already acted upon this, is that the the, the unification of the army. Um, is a prerequisite as well. Yeah. Uh, already Ahmed Maitig and, and Fatih Bashar and, and a few other notables from Salata have taken this step uh, with the Libyan National Army. Um, there are a few more steps that they, they need to take, but it's it's complicated. Uh, one of those is that they need to professionalize the army. That means no jumping rank. That means maintaining the, the hierarchy yeah. and, and making it a clear hierarchy. Um, and then, uh, you know, once, once that is on track and there's an understanding, uh, either you're going to include, uh, for example, some of Hefter's sons and then, uh, you know, figures in, from Musawata like Muhammad Hassan or Abdus Salam Azumi or others who are not, uh, you know, uh, properly ranked officers, if I could put it that way. 
um, you know, it's either you include them and you decide that you're going to, you know, change the order of, of things within your, your, your military hierarchy, or you kick them all out and you stick to the, um, the appropriate, uh, ranking order. And that's what I would support. Uh, after which I would say that the, the international community could, could, um, could help us by simply um, demanding, and this would have to come from a democratically elected government, that all of the leaders of all of the armed groups uh, not only surrender their weapons, but surrender themselves. Yeah. Um, um, we, we could work out some kind of an amnesty uh, for them, but they would need to surrender first, and they would need to be on um, every Interpol list uh, in the world, so that they have nowhere to go with with their wealth, yeah. um, they would be effectively be stuck in Libya, um, uh, and that would be the first step towards like real uh, disarmament of of Libya's armed groups. Unless that happens, unless these these groups are disarmed, um, they will continue to run the show behind the scenes. They know how everything works. They intentionally control different. Uh, parts of, of, of the country in order to use that to, to, uh, as leverage or blackmail or influence uh, and unless they're dealt with in that way um, you know and, and I mean once there's a there's a Libyan army it's uh, a unified Libyan army um, you know in, in dealing with them violently as a last resort has to be on the table yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, if, they, if they won't surrender uh, because they won't uh, at least most of them won't. So unless unless they're dealt with, um, I, I don't I don't really see any way out of this. Um, but otherwise, you know, elections is a good first start, and then and then we see what we we see what happens from there. Well, that sounds a very sensible view. And uh, personally, I cannot think of any other way out. I just hope we'll see it in our lifetimes. Because uh, yeah, you know, you begin to lose hope uh, after a while. It's been a long time now. Yeah, I, um, last my last thought, and I like to share this with most people that, that I talk to Libya about. For me, there's no there's no nation that's more similar to us than, than Somalia, in my opinion. Anyways, yeah, yeah. And and there's a there's a friend of mine. He's he's a PhD. He has a PhD in education. And he's back involved in Somali politics. And I asked him because now they have a functioning parliament and. They've mostly sorted out their issues. How did they sort it out? And he said, well, look, uh, it took a long time. Basically, the, uh, the warlords uh, uh, either got sick or, uh, uh, or, or died of, of old age. And it was once they were out of the way that we were able to sit down and, and, and work things out. Thank you very much. That was Asim Perig, also known as Ibn Sabit, talking to me. Mohammed al Dufani on Five Minutes to Midnight about the problem of the militias in Libya and possible ways of resolving it.